This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Hi, I'm Roisin Ingle and you are very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I get very nosy with some big names about the stuff they hang on their walls and hide in their drawers and basically find out all about the homes they've lived in. I've already poked around the houses of the likes of Marion Keyes and Dolly Alderton and coming up, I'll be going back to yours with Dermot Bannon and Amy Huberman. But for this episode, my guest is the actor, activist and all-round kick-ass woman, Rose McGowan. As many of you will know, Rose has played a pivotal role in the Me Too movement and was one of the first women to speak out about Harvey Weinstein. I spoke to her when she was in Dublin to promote her memoir, Brave. In it, she talks about her childhood growing up in an Italian cult, but says it wasn't as bad as some of the other places she's lived in. Fox News, I'm sure you've heard of them. I have. They just put me on there. They use my mugshot <laughs> as the main picture. And they said, Rose McGowan says America was harder than the cult. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> now, Rose describes herself as a thorny little thing. And I have to admit, I was a bit nervous about meeting her, but I really needn't have been. She was warm, funny and an engaging guest. And I know you're really going to enjoy this. Rose, tell me what home means to you. Wow, home. Home has always been something that's been very charged for me, mostly because I never had probably a stable home growing up. So there was no like family home, so to speak. Um, Home, you know, a lot of people say, I I wish I was in space or I want to go to space. And I always say, where do you think you are? Because to me, that's my true home. You know, I think we're all, we're hanging upside down on the planet right now. We're literally hanging off of it. And because I've had no direct real relationship um, with home as uh, a sense of security and safety growing up, later I certainly try to create that for myself. But it's a really, it's a complex question that you just asked. Yeah. I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back then um, to your very first home. Wait, let you me were take actually, off my plastic jacket. Take off your plastic jacket. We're going to hear some noise from Rose's jacket. This now. is my jacket now, everybody. <laughs> um, my current home is my jacket. <laughs> well, there's another saying which I love, which is home is where the feet are. And that sense that you kind of have to be at home wherever you are. Otherwise, you know, you're a bit lost. You have to make everywhere your home. You do have to make everywhere your home. And my feet... And I always, I always, I like that saying, keep your head where your feet are at. And that's usually for when your fears are getting the better of you and you're tripping off into the what if land. <laughs> so I try to keep my head where my feet are at so I don't freak out. I think it's really funny you say in your book that you were born in a barn. I love that expression. Like we, we use that a lot in Ireland as well. Were you born in a barn? Shut the door. And my answer is yes. And I don't <laughs> have to shut your door. I was literally born in a barn. And no, I do not have to shut the door. Tell us about the place that you grew up in your early childhood in. There was a duke that was in the commune that I grew up in, a thing called Children of God. And he was in the group, so it was on ducal estates. And they were beautiful. It was um, different places that could fit 100 weird hippie Jesus people in Tuscany. You know, he had, he had various properties and that we lived on. And it was incredibly beautiful. 
I mean, Tuscany, Italy is is uh, not. It was really multinational. The group that I was in, so there was no nationalism. There was no. I mean, the laws were unto our own. So I never really mixed with society in terms of, you know, school and going home after school, going to your house kind of thing. Mm. I didn't have that experience, but I did have a beautiful estate that was from probably the 14, 1500s, you know, stone barns, stone manor houses and geraniums, red geraniums and uh, cypress trees, Mm. those pointy trees that are so specific to Tuscany. Do you know Tuscany is the only place in Italy that's allowed to have cypress trees other than in, in the rest of Italy, they're only allowed to be in cemeteries? I did not know that. Yeah, there's your little factoid. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I know you have a really uh, big artistic sensibility. You're an artist. That's what you are at heart, even more than an actor or any other things you've done. Actor was my day job. Yeah. yeah. Actor was something you sort of pretended to be. I've, I've, I've heard I you did. Say. I, I felt like I did deep cover as an actor or an actress. And uh, I hated having to write that. You know, whenever you land somewhere and they make you fill out the landing card and you have to write your occupation. I always really resented having to write actress because it was so narrow and so not encompassing of me. And comes with so many stereotypes also. But I was thinking about the nature there in Italy and how that informed kind of how you see things and your aesthetic. Would, would you say that that was yeah, very the first much beauty so. that you saw when you were grow, growing up? Definitely. And my father was an incredible artist. He was, he was a wild human, a true rascal in every sense of the word. And fascinating man, a very complex and difficult man. An amazing, weird laugh. But the way he saw things and the light and the colors that he captured in his art, I was heavily inspired by that as well. And 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 it is true, the light in Italy, especially in Florence, is, is very specific. And artists have taken from that light for a long time their inspiration. And, and I think I was one of them, too. Mm. It's difficult for people to understand what it would have been like in a place like that where you were... Children of God, it was called. It was very religious. Um, you were being, I suppose, brainwashed to a degree. They tried. The <laughs> they got the wrong child. They got the you. wrong child. I was definitely a thorn in their side. With rose. And no pun intended there, actually. But I, I really was a thorny little thing because I didn't, what they were doing wasn't matching up with what they were saying. So I just figured, well, if I agree with you, then I'm believing in your God and your God doesn't make any actual sense to me. So I think I'll just disregard that entirely. There's some, we'll talk about the positive things first because you'd mentioned the nature of the beautiful environment you were living in. Yes. You also were surrounded by a lot of books and you weren't surrounded by any mirrors, which are two things that I think you took from it that were good. Two great things, you know. Um, gender gets weaponized against people at a very early age and I got, I got kind of a pass for a little while, mm. for longer than most children get it. You know, they get told they're a girl or a boy and programmed and wearing pink and blue and having that kind of binary mindset mm. from such an early age, from before they can even talk. Uh, I escaped that. Mm. And I think it helped give me a real different viewpoint on the world and, and not just how I see myself. It kept, it kept me apart from other people because I didn't think the same way that they did about an awful lot of things. And reading was my salvation completely. And that was the way, and I still do, I I escape into other worlds and other stories to to leave my own and also to travel. Mm. 
Tell me then about the some of the things that weren't good about that. Obviously, you were being kind of told this is how you have to live and this is the control that we want you to be under. So tell me some of the things that were traumatic memories for you from that time. You know, more than just traumatic, it was very stressful. It was kind of like a high wire act. You know, I was um, always supposed to be looking out for people that were talking about my father behind his back or... Um, you know, kind of like supposed to be a little spy in a way. And you weren't allowed to have any physical imperfection, which was interesting. So I had a wart on my thumb at one point and I was picked up and someone just hacked it off of me and set me back down with blood flowing everywhere. And I remember that really vividly, but it was also a really beautiful looking situation. I don't know how to describe it. It's so strange sounding, I suppose. But... um when I was little and I talk about this in my book, I found a camera and it got taken away from me very quickly. But I had looked through that lens and so I started using it. I guess a psychologist would probably say as a disassociative tool, but I looked at it. I started pretending I was looking through a square or a rectangular lens at everything and filming it for posterity. So that's how my memories are so vivid. So one, it kept me, while I was in a situation that was, say, fraught with peril or or painful or stressful or freaky, I was also outside of my body filming it without a camera, filming it with my mind for a later date to analyze the situation. Did you feel safe in that home? No, no, that safety hasn't really been a big thing for me. And the reason you left then? Uh, We left because they started advocating child adult sex, and that was too far for my father, so we escaped. We had some line beyond which he wasn't going to. Yeah, luckily. (laughs) You came to America, but that wasn't really home or didn't feel like home because it was so different to what you'd been used to. It was was kind of honestly a nightmare. Fox News, I'm sure you've heard of them. I have. They just put me on there. They use my (laughs) mugshot as the main picture. And they said, Rose McGowan says America was harder than the cult. Yes, yes, it was. Just because it's America doesn't mean it's not oftentimes traumatic for people that come and speak a different language. And they changed my name from Rosa to Rose the first day of school. They told me I didn't want to sound Mexican. I didn't know what that was. Um, They made me lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. And the teachers behind me said, uh, we're going to get the commie out of her. To which I replied, Italians were fascist, stupid. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me about the homes in America then because they were of quite a few and then you didn't have one. So first of all, with your step-grandmother and, and then with your dad. The first place I landed was with my step-grandmother in a, on a Navy base, a military base. And she told us, my brother and I, to watch out that the bears were going to come in and eat us that night. <laughs> and I had gone from Italy and its wonderful food to America, which was, uh, and her cooking, which was atrocious and the food was just plastic and disgusting. This is America, you know, in the mid 80s. It's, it was disgusting. And I cried when I ordered my first plate of pasta there because I thought I recognized something finally and I got so terribly excited. And then I, it was one congealed blob with water underneath and I started crying because I knew my life was never going to be the same. Oh, God. People call me freak and ugly every day, tried to throw things or did throw things at me out of their cars. Uh, the worst thing I ever got was like a liter bottle of a soda that 
was really somebody's, um, they call it chew, the nicotine, the tobacco they put in their lip, and then they spit it into something, and it was a full liter of it. And it hit me in the head, and it doused me like the movie Carrie with their tobacco spit. Freak! That kind of thing. Bam! And I could not understand why these people in this country were having such a tremendously negative reaction to me. I thought, well, how am I so threatening to you? I'm a child. And I was a small child. What age were you? Ten. Yeah. Ten. And, and, and to this day. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much continued. I'm sure there's a fair bit of people that would like to throw a liter bottle of spit at me right now. Well, there's a lot of people who want to love bomb you as well. So even yeah, so. that's nice. It um, evens up. What about your dad's home then, moving in with him? Was Colorado also beautiful? Colorado was stunning. Colorado um, is in the western United States, and it's the Rocky Mountains, and truly one of the most magical, beautiful places. And in Colorado, I was uh, went a lot easier for me. The people there liked the way I looked, and but it taught me at a very early age that neither mattered. If you think I'm ugly or you think I'm beautiful, you don't. Neither of you know me, so it 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 never registered. Um, but obviously you'd prefer not to be have people try to run you over when you walk down the street. Mm. So it, it was a bit better there. And my father had uh, the first house he had there was really cool. It was in a place called Kittredge, Colorado, and it was blue. And it had uh, a circular dining room that hung out mm. over a creek over the cool. hill. Yeah, it was really – and it had a Dutch door, the type of door the top half opens oh, out. Oh, yeah, like a saloon type of thing. A saloon type yeah. of thing. And I ran – the first time I ran away was there, actually. I got in trouble for doing something stupid and was made to go to my room. So in very dramatic fashion, I used a Band-Aid and taped a uh, – <laughs> A plaster and and taped a note to the. You told me to go, so I'm gone. And I went and I hid under the bridge with this homeless man for while my father. I could hear him yelling for me in his car, driving over the bridge, looking for me. And I was like, I stayed down there for as long as I could. That house was really cool. My father had excellent taste, uh, really incredible taste in furniture, and um, we had this really amazing blue kind of almost a canvas fabric of a couch with uh, with kind of studs in it, uh, you know, to keep the fabric around. And it's, it was just a really, he had excellent taste. I'll give him that. He was a wild weirdo, but excellent taste. And you talked about the first time you ran away. So leaving and getting away from homes is a theme f- for you. When did you <laughs> actually do it like for real and end up on the streets? And what was the, what well, there? I didn't, when I was 13, I was put into um, an institution uh, at the behest of a lovely stepfather that I had. And so I ran away from the hospital. So that wasn't, I guess that was my home at the time. And in fact, it was really funny. There was this girl that used to walk on the end of my bed every night. She's like, you hear it? It's my gang. They're calling me. And I was like, no, you're white and you're not that white people can't be in gangs, but I'm pretty sure this girl from... Eugene, Oregon, you know, was not in a gang. There were some weird people in in the institution with me, I could say. But I became the ringleader of all the weirdos. I, I was younger than all of them, but I, I definitely took over. And when I, I made two... <laughs> you were used to weird situations. Like I was used to them. I'm like, let's go. And so I became the leader of the weirdos. And they were all sad to see me go. I escaped twice, the second time stuck. And then I became... I met two drag queens and a stripper named Tina and stayed with Tina in, an, in a city called Portland. 
And I remember her, my father always said, don't ever live anywhere that has popcorn ceilings. And she had popcorn ceilings. And I thought, oh dear, oh dear. Well, what is a popcorn ceiling? It's like that white crunchy stuff. If you're, let's say you're bouncing on your bed and, and, and you hit your head on the popcorn ceiling, it like stabs you. It's like a cheap. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. We, it's a cheap sort of, it's paint like spray dash type like, of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's really gross. So you you saw that and you were like, okay, oh, my dad no. wouldn't like. I was this. like, my dad would not like this situation. But I'm homeless. <laughs> never and, mind. Yeah. Never mind me being homeless and, and not eating for three days. I'm living straight with a stripper. Starving, living with a stripper, <laughs> but and going and dancing on gay nightclub stages at night and working it out and just being a little weirdo. But uh, that was they became my home. You know, now we would call them trans, but then they were called drag queens. Mm. And. You lived this kind of life, uh, you were homeless as well, so you were with them, but you were on the streets as well sometimes? I was on the streets sometimes. When Tina wasn't there, we would get locked out and I would sleep in cemeteries. Right. Which I've always found very peaceful and calming. The only thing I own outright in my life right now is uh, is a Porsche and eight plots in a cemetery in Seattle, Washington. Why did you buy those plots, Rose? It was a little, after my dad died, I kind of went crazy. I didn't like my stepmother very much, and I wanted to ban her from being buried around us. So I bought a quarter of a cemetery, which looking back is a little extreme. But you have them now, so. You know. I have somewhere to go. You have a home for I have later a home. on. I have a home for later on. <laughs> I don't even want to be buried there. I don't even, you know, I don't want to be buried there, but I suppose I'm going to have to since I, it's my only thing that I own. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. Tell us about the streets and not having a home. Because it's something that a lot of people are experiencing in in, yeah. in this country too at the moment and all over the world. But, yeah. you know, and you you were there. What What's that? You were always, it sounds like you've always been quite in insecure situations. So this is probably more extreme. But how did it feel or what was your... Hunger. Hunger uh, was a big thing. And I collected cans because you could get uh, 10 cents for the return of a can. And so I collected cans so I could get enough money to get food, but that would only be about every three or four days. Or I would buy a hit of acid because when you do acid, you don't notice the cold. I also, I had a lot of fun, but it also stayed that fear, that rock bottom fear of having nowhere to go. I don't think it's ever left me. Hmm. You got into acting very by accident. Were you homeless when, when that happened, when that kind of incidental thing? I or was had about you found to be something? because my boyfriend had just been murdered. And I was standing on a street corner crying and a woman came up to me and she said, do you want to be an actress? And I was standing next to a friend of my boyfriend who had just died and he knew the woman. And so she got in touch with him and this director named Greg Araki was looking for a very specific physical type to play this part. And he'd already been all over the world searching. And two weeks later, I was finally convinced to go to the audition and I thought, it'll be enough money for an apartment. And the only reason I became an actress was so I wouldn't be homeless again. That was my, that was my, people are like, literally, what's your motivation in this scene? I'm like, to not be homeless. So did you get 
an apartment and did you start to have a, a, a you know a secure home from that point when you started to earn money in acting I did and and you'll laugh because it had popcorn ceilings and I was <laughs> I cried when I saw them and I was so dismayed and I met this girl and she needed a roommate so we got this apartment together and it was so ugly I cried when I saw it and she's like it doesn't matter we have to do this and I said okay and so I put AstroTurf on the ceiling instead of uh, to cover the white popcorn and hung golf balls off of it. I don't know what I was thinking exactly. I was like, I'm just going to lean into the weird at this point. <laughs> and it was not the sexiest apartment, but it was a roof over my head for a year. And then, and then after that, um, I got a place in an area called Silver Lake in L.A., and it was $525 a month, and I would cry because I didn't know how I was going to afford it, and I was so stressed out. And then I got a dog, um, a, a little girl named Bug, a Boston Terrier, and she became my home. Tell me about that, uh, the sense of an animal being something that makes you feel at home. Yeah, they. Uh, and then I got Fester uh, six months later. I had Fester and Bug, and they anchored me more than anything I've ever been anchored to in, in my entire life, I would say. Mm -hmm. And they were um, they were my heart, yeah. Did Hollywood ever feel like home? No. Why? It's a terrifying place. It was for me anyway. Maybe not for everybody, but it was it was uh it's a place that implants you with a lot of fears. And I'm someone that hates being afraid. And but there are, the implantation is effective. It's very effective. Don't step out of line, little girl. You can be replaced. You know, mind your P's and Q's. Don't, don't, don't talk. Don't speak up. Don't push back. Don't rock the boat. And people always had this idea that I was um, going to be difficult, which is not remotely the case. Uh, I'm extremely professional and have never been difficult on any set I've ever been on or any work environment even when I should have been, you know, to fight for myself since nobody else was. But Hollywood never felt safe. I liked Los Angeles, though. When I was 15, I went there, and I was with my mom for a brief spell. They're actually in a house in Hollywood. And then she met someone and left, and I stayed by myself and got a job at a PR firm. I wrote about this, but it didn't make it into the book. Uh, but I, I pretended that I was... Um, a graduate of the USC Corporate School of Communications, which to my knowledge doesn't exist. and Sounds good. Yeah, sounded very hoity-toity. <laughs> and so I bought, um, I looked at magazines to see what adult women, working women wore, and I, I went and I bought pantyhose, <laughs> nylons, the hideous tan things that bagged around my ankles. And, and I remember the people at the PR company, it was a medical PR firm, and they represented a company, a pharmaceutical company. And there was this big breast implant scandal going on that they were finding that breast implants were leaking and causing women all this damage. So we were the PR firm to put a big, nice spin on women's bodies rotting away from the inside. And I was a junior account executive, whatever the fuck that is. Like, it was the weirdest cast of characters. There's this girl that worked there, and Kiki Breath, she was... About four foot ten, which is extremely small, maybe four foot eight. And she had those kind of fingernails that are so long they curl. Yeah. And she had a wart on the end of her tongue and she would clack her her nails against the computer and go <laughs> with the wart on her tongue. And she sat behind me and like that was that was the sound of my day. Ugh. I bet you didn't last very long there. I lasted almost a year. Jesus. 
I was very, but they were always talking to me about my clothing choices. They're like, Rose, uh, they were always pulling me aside because I was trying to, I was dressed in this weird pastiche of what I thought an adult Mm. human would wear. And I always kind of felt like that with clothes because I didn't integrate much into society and I was kind of an adult from such a young age. I had no idea what normal, whatever that means, people wear. So I always kind of feel like still to this day, I'll go out and I'll be like, well, I'm approximating what a human looks like. And then I look like, I look like a deranged Easter egg today. Like every weird color you could possibly put on in one and then whatever. So talk to me about the next home or the place in LA that did, that you did find as a sanctuary, if you found it. Eventually I did a a show called Charmed and that enabled me to buy this house that was stunning. It was from 1926 and it was a Spanish house in an area called Los Feliz, which translates to the happy and I lived there for five years. The house was stunning. And I brought it back to its former glory. And I planted all these um, plants that came from South America in the front yard. So it was extremely tropical. Mm. There were a lot of stalkers at this point for me. So I got this uh, fence that I had built that had spikes. It was just big spikes. So if anybody tried, they couldn't put their feet on it. Otherwise, they would get impaled. I had short spikes and tall spikes. And that circled my house. And the house, at that point, I was the most famous I had been. And it was a nightmare. It was like people pulling at my hair, people pulling at my clothes. When you just try to walk down the street, TV fame is really weird. People freak out and they think they know you and they think you're their friend, but they also, you're an object. You know, they would grab my boobs and be like, oh, they are real. Or, you know, just, just st- all the, every day. And it was a, a really lonely period for me in my life. It was an incredibly lonely period. But the house had this amazing Spanish tile, like staircase that I would fall down all the time. And it had this balcony hanging off, you know, over the garden that was incredible. And the house really, it became... It it was, it was kind of like a tomb for me. And I thought I was allergic to the house, so I sold it because I was, my eyes for about a year were swelling every night and I couldn't stop it. And I kept going to work and I kept having to stay in hotels because every time I was home, my eyes would swell up as if I'd gotten stung by a bee. And I had it, you know, tested for mold. I had, I spent $75,000 ripping the roof off and having the whole thing gutted, the whole exhaust system rebuilt. And then the first night in a rental house that I hated after that, after having to let go of this beautiful house, it turned out it was the feathers and the pillows. Oh God, Rose. Yeah. There was a tree in the backyard of that house that was so special and so beautiful. And I sold it to this man and he cut that 200 year old (gasps) tree down and I want to kill him. Just saying. Okay. Can we go back um, to when <laughs> that, uh, yeah, the studio head uh, did that horrible thing and you're in Sundance and your life changes forever. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you call it the death of self. And that's where you equate sexual assault with a kind of murder. Of it people is. People taking life. How did you manage to find any sense of home at that time? I was living with a boyfriend then, actually, and uh, staying at his house in an area called Venice Beach. And um, I was having nightmares after that happened to me, and I was screaming and crying in bed in the night. And he would turn to me and say, can you just shut up? Can you just stop? And so that relationship ended, and I moved to this very cool two-bedroom 
flat, as you would say here, from that one was from 1923, also a Spanish style. And I lived there with my two dogs and it was beautiful. It was really, really beautiful. Uh, at that point, I was trying to just, I wanted to be who I was before it happened to me. I was desperately trying to be who I had been. And it took me a long time to realize that that just doesn't work and it doesn't happen and you're, you're forever different. I heard you say something before about uh, you, the fact that you're so self-aware, right? And even when you were a kid in, in the commune growing up, the things that were happening, you were saying, okay, this is really weird, but I know later on I'll, I'll get some therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I think you said it to Roseanne um, yeah. a long time ago, an interview yeah. you did it years ago. Did it feel like that at the time? Obviously, this is a totally di a different thing in a way. It's the, most, the worst thing that had ever happened to you, even despite all that stuff in the commune. This was, this was a thing that killed you in a way. It did. Did you have that sense as well? Could look down on it and say, I will get through this? I tried to escape it for a long time, you know. Um, I tried to escape it. Something I didn't put in my book, but that is true, is that the night I came home after being sexually assaulted, my roommate, my best girlfriend, was hanging. She hung herself. And she'd um, suffered so much sexual abuse and sexual assault, she snapped. She couldn't take it. And... uh she shaved her head before she did it, and I found her hair on the doorstep. And uh, I didn't put that in my book because I just thought, well, that's too much. That's too much. But it's... Uh, and you found her. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Rose. Her name was Ingrid. She was amazing. Some things you just file away under this sucks. This sucks really bad. You didn't stay there, I presume. You had to... Just go no, I hadn't home. And you went to your boyfriend who was so understanding Lovely. and compassionate. <laughs> That's why I wound up staying at his house. Yeah. I know this is really painful. Not necessarily in this format, but I like remembering Ingrid. She had great style <laughs> and taught me a lot about um, architecture, actually. And we talked a lot about beauty in the world and, and environmental beauty and what it meant to have a beautiful space that you curate yourself. And I, I like the idea of thinking like if I worked at a museum and I curated an art show, why wouldn't I curate my environment? Like, why would I not do that in my own places? Mm -hmm. So I've always had, uh, I started collecting art probably about 15 years ago and I have a pretty cool collection. I have to say, and I miss that the most right now, I'd say. And do you have it in storage? It's all in storage, yeah. Well, you'll have another home one day, put it all up. I hope so, yeah. You had to sell your home last year to pay legal bills. Yeah, that home was beautiful. That home was gorgeous. It was, uh, I moved there after getting away from the rental after the pillow incident and learning that I need hypoallergenic pillows of all stupid things. Which don't cost $75,000. No, they do not. Nor do they cause distress. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that house... It was really beautiful. It was like an open plan and it it backed up to a hillside, a really steep hillside. And it was very vertical, this hillside. So what I did was I made it like um, a garden, a vertical garden. And I oh, made it, lovely. I planted these things called fire sticks, which are these very tall, they're, as it turns out, the most poisonous plant you can plant. I didn't know that. But they, they look like weird cactus crossed with fire and I used them to make uh, like a picture frame around the property and then I used oh. um, plants and 
a lot of cacti and yucca and things like that and different colored flowers to make a painting, but a living one. And and that was the home you had to sell? That's the home I had to sell. And I had a, a jacuzzi that I had a wall built around it into the hillside because they're ugly and no one wants to look at them. <laughs> and on the wall there was a mural and it said, Rise. Did you have, uh, were you the kind of person who had mad parties in Hollywood? I had some mad parties now and then. I had some really, well, I made the mistake of having a going away party, but I didn't want anybody. And then I found some girl up in the hillside pulling out my plants. And I was like, who are you? Get off my plants. She's like, I'm making you a flower arrangement. And I'm thinking, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And then, you know, never have a going away party. Uh, People will trash it, as I've learned. That house was really, really special. The first thing I bought for it was um, this kind of ball-bearing chandelier fixture for the kitchen by Pierre Cardin, a really amazing 70s designer and furniture designer, clothing and furniture. And it just it had a fireplace that was open to two rooms. Oh. It's, it was a glorious place. And it had such – and I, I had such peace there, and it was – there was – there's nothing around but hawks and coyotes. And you could hear the coyotes at night calling to each other from the hills after they just killed something. It's kind of the worst sound. They're like, oh, you know, I don't know how to, I can, I don't know how to make coyotes after eating a dog sound, but it was, you'd plug your ears and hope for it to stop. <laughs> when you think of that house, which you so recently sort of had to let go of, what are the pieces of art or the things in it that really were, were the things that made you feel so much more at home and happy and at peace. I curated it really well. I think it just had a really peaceful, really calm energy. I didn't play music a lot. I kept it very quiet so I could hear the trees. Yeah, it was it was a really magical home. A lot of people, you know, that have been there talk about it like that was that was magic. That place was magic. Rose, you've had the most uh, turbulent and uh, unreal um, 18 months that have, you know. Yeah been very very difficult how in all of that and where have you been in terms of somewhere you can close the door and escape and feel okay I'm safe or can you do that when you're you know when the whole world is talking about you when you're you know seen as this spearhead of this new uh, conversation that's going on which is such a wonderful conversation that has changed the culture that we live in that has changed the way people relate to each other that is going to have so many ramifications in a positive way I think when we come out the other side of it because it's difficult it is difficult but it's necessary and so the home I have a flat in London right now and it's my friends but I've been staying there and I had been like at a different Airbnb or hotel like every five days I'd been living out of a suitcase for about nine months straight and I and my partner Rain said you need to stop running and just set your bag down for a little bit so I have but it's not my furniture and it's not my art but I can shut a door and I can call that mine for right now. So that's the best I can do at this moment. Tell, tell me about Rain. Does she make you feel at home? Rain is my They. Home. I know Rain uses pronouns, so we're going to have yeah, to make Rain, sure. Rain, they. They are my home. Yeah, we're each other's home. They are very beautiful, can I say? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So Rain is a, a very non-binary person. Non-binary person. And, and Rain calls me fire and, and I call them water. <laughs> uh, yeah. She's got a very calming presence. 
And when you met Rain, did you feel like this is going to be someone that's going to make me feel safe and a safety that maybe you haven't? And at a time was so important because it's last July, I think you met. Yeah, no, it was crazy. I can't imagine anybody wanting to go out with me during that period. <laughs> I would not want to go out with me or any, I didn't want to go out with anybody. I just, I asked Rain to dinner and Rain replied with a long text about relationships or some bullshit. And I said, I'm just asking you to dinner. Chill out. <laughs> It's okay. And we've been together ever since. We've been through some uh, really difficult times and and we had this instinct about each other that if we can just get to the other side of this craziness, that it'll be worth it. And uh, so far it's really worth it. You've uh, you've grown a little herb garden there in the flash. I have. I've, I have. I have some herbs, as you would say. Herbs. Oh, you say herbs. Yes, yeah, we, we say herbs. herbs. You, you say, say tomato. Herbs. We say tomato. Tomato. So. You say pasta. We say pasta. pasta. Yeah, there's a lot of differences. Uh, uh, yeah, basil is my favorite. Basil. Basil. Yeah, yeah. Cila- it's not cilantro either. Coriander. It's coriander. I hate Very cilantro. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. My mother hates it. It's, I love it. It, it tastes like I've had soap in my mouth before, and I can verify the fact that it tastes just like fucking soap. <laughs> oh, if my mother's listening, she will totally relate to that. She's like, yeah. there was a website that I used to go on called IHateCilantro.com, <laughs> and it was everybody's first contact with the hated weed. I love that website. Okay, if I'm coming around to yours for dinner, what are you going to make me? Spaghetti with tomato and basil. Basil. <laughs> basil. Yeah. Basil. Spaghetti with tomato, really a really good al dente spaghetti with a really lovely tomato sauce, um, plum tomatoes. And I put some sugar, red wine, salt, pepper, red pepper flakes, and a nice al dente linguine, probably with a romaine lettuce salad on the side and a nice glass of brunello. Will you throw in some garlic bread? No? Well, I'm not really a garlic bread. That's more Southern Italy. Okay. okay. Northern okay. Italy is, it doesn't, isn't like so much the fried oily <laughs> stuff. Not too much. Um I could try. <laughs> Grant, I'll bring some frozen stuff. And bring some frozen one. <laughs> and that's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Rose McGowan for letting me go back to hers. I'm Roisin Ingle and remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about this podcast. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is Dermot Bannon. Everything is kind of inspired by the arts and craftsmen. It's, oh. So it's basically it's modernism with a little bit of love See, I have and to a little say, bit of twist. It's my kind of house. I like this. Do you I like this? The uniqueness. I like the hokiness. I, I can't say that. I love this. Do you love this? I love this. I can't say that anymore without people bursting out laughing in my face. So. <laughs>